So my dad passed away in 2015. We weren't talking and it took a month for his family to track me down. Before I ever knew he was gone, I started hearing from him in heaven. It consumed me. How is communication with the other side even possible? I left my corporate gig, studied with spiritual teachers on every coast, and worked with my angels to figure out the answers. Today, my mission is teaching you how to raise your vibration, shift your thoughts, trust your intuition, develop your unique spiritual gifts, and connect with your loved ones and angels on the other side. Friends, when you have these tools, life really does become heaven on earth. Hello, beautiful souls. Welcome to the Angels and Awakening podcast. I'm your host, Julie Jancis, and today we are here with one of the stories that has just touched my heart more than any on this show. We are here with Madame Salah Ward. Some people know her as the former notorious attorney during the Black Lives Matter who defied the system or one of the top female slam poets in the world. She's also the self-proclaimed professional troublemaker for the National Organization for Women, the largest women's organization in the world. People that have heard her speak in person know that this wasn't always her story. Before she became Stella Ward, Juris Doctor, she was Carmel the sex worker. When you hear her speak live, she tells an addictive story of resilience and how you can be your own superhero, even when the world thinks you're a villain. People have seen her on TLC's reality TV show, She's in Charge, CNN, C-SPAN, BET, and on the stage of the March for the Women's Live the largest march in the history of the U.S. for its time. Find out how Sella Ward Juris Doctor went from bars to bars, bars to bars, yet no bars can break the unbreakable spirit she has. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yay. I'm so glad to be here. This is awesome. Thank you for having me. Yes, yes. And I have to apologize to everybody. I really wanted to bring this story to everybody earlier. We had some technical difficulties on our first interview. So I am so sorry. I just want you to just I just want to send that over to your heart chakra because that never happens. And I just felt so terrible. Oh, no, it's no problem. Sometimes God has a different plan for us. So we follow what his plan is, not ours. Oh, I love that. Amen. So what I want to do is I want to dive in because you have this amazing story and I want you to take us back to when you were young, growing up and kind of share that, that story with everybody. Because I think that there are times in life when you hear somebody's story and really you see the spirit within them. And every time I hear your story, I just imagine, I see, I feel this huge spirit that you have, that your soul encompasses and all that you're here to do. You are here to touch the lives of so many people. So I'm going to have you take it away. Oh my goodness. Uh, I don't even know where to start. My name is Law Ward. 
I'm currently in Atlanta, Georgia. I have a business architect firm here in Atlanta, Georgia, one of the top business architect firms in the Southeast region. I, I specialize in helping small to mid-nice businesses go from hustle to enterprise. But before that, I, I was an attorney doing the Black Lives Matter movement for going on a decade. And prior to that, I also organized the March for Women's Lives, the 2004 March for Women's Lives, which at the time was the largest march on, Was- on Washington in the history of the United States for its time with over 1.3 million people attending during that time. I worked for the National Organization for Women. You said I was a troublemaker, <laughs> self-proclaimed troublemaker. That's actually, you know, what I was hired to do. It wasn't necessarily self-proclaimed. They hired me to go around and organize protests and demonstrations around the country and in some cases around the world, um, around wow. right issues, which was an amazing experience, which really, you know, brought me into into my activism that you see today. So during that time, I did get the opportunity to work for the largest women's organization in the world and organize the March for Women's Lives. But like you said, that wasn't always my story. The March for Women's Lives and the National Organization for Women was actually one of the transitions that took me from, you know, the sex worker that you talked about before to my divine purpose a little bit later in life. So um, it was definitely a huge journey. You said said Carmel, which is funny, like the different dialect. It always makes me laugh. My name was Caramel. (laughs) I'm so sorry. (laughs) No, it's it's not a problem at all. It's just the different dialects, how people um, pronounce different words, but it always makes me laugh, you know, because I don't think everybody says Caramel. I think maybe that has something to do with my Southern background, um, that I say caramel. <laughs> I, love it. I love it. It sounds so sexy just as you say it. <laughs> yeah, so um, it, it was definitely a journey. Okay, so one of the things that we talked about last time, you know, I think we all have this, but I want to put it in perspective for people because this is privilege, right? I really understood what privilege was as you and I came together last time. And, you know, Spirit before our last interview had really kind of kept putting this memory back into my mind over and over again. And it was a memory of me going to the mall because when I was like in eighth grade, my parents split. My mom was working, you know, as much as she could to just make the ends meet. And she worked at a mall. So we would go to the mall with her. She worked at the makeup counter, the department store. And that's where we spent our Saturdays. Sometimes our Sundays was just at the mall. And I remember thinking to my Myself, somebody's going to see me. Somebody's going to see me, one of these rich ladies buying their makeup, and they're going to be like, Julie, this is how you do it. This is how you do life. And they're going to save me, right? And I, I had this for so long, like somebody's going to come along and save me. Mm-hmm. And I got to the point where I realized I just have to save myself. Like nobody's coming, nobody's coming. Nobody's going to share this information just off the cuff in some magical unicorn dream. Like if you want to make stuff happen, you have to go make life happen. You have to take responsibility for that. You had the exact same thing from when you were younger, but it's a very, very different story. And I saw my privilege in this, would you mind sharing that story of you and and your mom kind of disappearing for a little bit? You didn't know why she was gone and what happened there. 
Yes, yes. So when I was 11 years old, my mother uh, left. She disappeared. That's very true for a couple of weeks. Now, this wasn't the first time she had disappeared in my life because my mother was a rock star. When I say rock star, I'm talking about people that were uh, addicted to crack cocaine or um, were um, addicted to drugs. In our community, because I was surrounded by so many rock stars, we couldn't call them crack addicts or crackheads because that was an insult. You get beat up popped in the head for calling somebody a crack. And they're like, don't be saying that, you know? So we called them rock stars because they were surviving, you know, crack cocaine addiction. They were surviving a drug that was put into our communities on purpose to be able to disenfranchise us. So we called them rock stars because that, that's what they were. So my mom at that point in my life, when I was 11 years old, she was a rock star. She had been a rock star probably, you know, I don't know the exact time when she started, but sometime around between the ages of seven and eight, I think possibly is when um, it started for her. I had experiences with her prior where she disappeared, you know, occasionally she would disappear for a couple of days. Uh, we called it going out on missions when she was just getting high for a couple of days and then she would come back, you know, like nothing happened. <laughs> you know, one day I would just wake up and she's in the kitchen cleaning, you know, or cooking something like, hey, baby, like. Woman, where you been? You've been gone for like, <laughs> you know, she was like, oh, I'm okay. everything's okay. I'm back, you know. And when she was, you know, recovering from her high addiction, she used to love to clean. She would clean all the time when she was, you know, either getting high or recovering from the high addiction. But um, this particular time was a little bit different because one day went by, two days went by, three days went by, and she still hadn't come home. I remember this particular incident, I was trying to get into the house and the doors was locked, right? We had two locks. There was a bottom lock and a top lock. So, you know, I, I, I was normally able to get into the bottom lock, but this particular time, both locks were locked. So I remember having to climb up the balcony because we were on the second floor, climbing up the balcony and breaking into the sliding door to be able to get to the house. And even when I was knocking on the door at the front door, I could hear my little brother crying in the background. At the time, I had two younger siblings. One, I believe, was about four years old and the other one was less than six months old at the time. And I could hear them crying, but I, you know, I didn't understand why. Nobody was answering the door. So I climbed up on the balcony, broke into the sliding door, and I saw that they were there by themselves. One of my brother, the baby, had fallen over the floor, and the other one was was out for the count. He was asleep. So, you know, days went by, weeks went by. This was around the Christmas holidays like we are now, and nobody came home. And my grandparents called me, and they were like, you know, Salah, what'd you get for Christmas? Because one thing about my mom is that she was always a hustler. She would make sure that even if we didn't have anything else, you know, going on throughout the year, that we had Christmas presents. She would make that happen. And I'll tell you some stories about, you know, some of the people that helped make Christmas happen, you know, in our neighborhood at a later point. And she would always make Christmas happen and make sure that we had something that kind of gave us faith, you know, that there was something that was bigger than us. So this particular time, she didn't have any, you know, we didn't get any Christmas presents. And that was a red flag to my grandmother that something was wrong, that, you know, something, you know, bad had possibly happened. So, you know, they looked around, they called the jails, you know, to find out what was going on with her. And we found out that she was in the hospital because she had been shot. She had been shot in the back in a crack cocaine deal that went bad. And that was when I first realized that my mom, you know, had a serious problem that I didn't really understand. 
and you talked about rescuing because at that point, that was the point that kind of changed the trajectory of my life because, you know, me and my mom after that point, when she did come home two weeks later, she had been shot. And I remember my cousins, like my family members didn't want to tell me she was shot because they knew they felt like that would like traumatize me. So they'd be like, oh, you know, she's coming home. She'll be fine. You know, she just had to go take care of some business. And my little cousins, because they had, you know, they talked to their parents or so they overheard their parents. It was like, your mama not coming home. Your mama been shot. I don't know where she been shot at, but she been shot. And I know, like, I was like, oh, my God, where's she been? Because I didn't know, like, I didn't have any information. So I didn't know if she got shot in the head, the face, the body. I didn't know where she got shot at. So I didn't know how bad or how, you know, small it was. Uh, fortunately, she was able to come home, you know, some weeks later. But when she came home, she looked, she looked like a completely different person. I remember she came through the door in a wheelchair and she was so small. She had less than a hundred pounds because she had lost so much weight after she had gotten shot and she couldn't get around. She couldn't move for a couple of years. So I ended up having to move with my grandmother. And during this time, my mom was also dealing with her own self-esteem issues, her own depression. So her crack cocaine addiction got worse, you know, from that point, caused her to distance herself from me in a way that I hadn't experienced previously. So for years, I tried to connect with my mom, like wanting her to love me like she did when I was younger, you know, wanting that connection you know, with her again, but I could never get it. And and missing that connection, it really, you know, I really started to look for other things in the world that I could connect with and that can love me and that can give me worth on top of that. Just being a young Black woman, right? Like, I remember just growing up, everybody in our community, even Black people in our community, were always reminding us that as Black women, that we were the least valuable of society. Like, we were the least valuable of any woman that walked this earth. You know, we were exotic. We didn't have have long hair. We didn't have light skin. We didn't have light eyes. And on top of that, I was full figured. I was a thick girl at the time. So I had that also where people were reminding me that your value is not worth anything. So, you know, and I had to actually, I had to go through a lot of therapy and a lot of coaching and a lot of self-love to get to the place where I can even have this conversation and recognize where it came from, which makes it a little bit easier to articulate, but I still have flashes if you want to have conversations about it. But I did, I, I went through a, a long time praying and imagining, you know, somebody would come and rescue me, you know, from that mall, like you had, you know, rescue me and make my life better and change things or improve my situation or teach me something, you know, or just take me under their arms the way that I wanted my mother to take me under her arms and say, this is how it's supposed to be done. And this will make your life okay. And I will be here to back you up when things go south. And I eventually had to realize that nobody was going to come. There was nobody that was going to rescue me. There was no cavalry that was coming. There was no white horse. There was no picket fence. There was no person that was going to recognize my worth, you know, and make it better. So I created my own superhero story. I had to become that superhero that I looked for to come rescue me. That is just such a powerful story. Thank you for sharing that. Remind me one more time, how old were you when that happened? So when my mother got shot, I was 11. Yeah. I was 11 years old. 
And and that just, I, I so have a perspective of that age right now because my daughter's nine going on 10 and we mm. look at them sometimes thinking that they're so old, but they're not, they're just babies, right? Mm. And just that story of, of you being an 11 year old little girl and taking care of your, your siblings for weeks. I, I give you just so much credit. I want to talk about your story and how it unfolds more because you go on to be a lawyer and help put on one of the biggest women's marches, you know, one of the biggest marches in history. Tell us about how you got there. Oh my goodness. One of the amazing things that really helped me about growing up with rock stars was their resilience, you know, their ability to not let no really affect them or to change, you know, their direction, not to be discouraged, not to be afraid of that rejection. And and there were points in my life where I was very afraid of rejection. And I was afraid of no, but everybody around me, all of the rock stars around me, they didn't seem to have that same fear. So if you've ever grown up around any type of rock stars, I used to have uncles and aunts that would come up to me and they'd be like, let me get $5 every time they would come to me. And, you know, we would always initially say no. And they would come back the next day, like you never told them no yesterday. They'd be like, let me get five dollars. You'd be like, no. And they come back to you 10 times afterwards saying, let me get five dollars. You'd be like, dang, okay, fine. Here, take the five dollars, right? Get out of my face. Leave me alone. Don't ask me again, right? But they never back down. They never seemed like they had discouragement when you told them no that first time or that second time or that third time. And and just being able to watch them, you know, and knowing, you know, when you come from a place where you've already been like the rejects of society, that you can only go up, it, it gives you this resilience that, hey, you know, the worst thing that can happen is somebody could tell you no, you know, like it, it gives you the the ability to bounce back from anything that anybody has to say. And that really helped me a lot later on in life as well. Like it helped me a lot later on because I had to hear no, 999 times and not be discouraged by it. Even when I was trying to become an attorney, you know, they told me no a hundred times before they told me yes. It was like, wait a minute, you know, you have a, a background, you have a criminal history. What's going on with this? What's going on with that? And, you know, if I did not have the resilience that was taught to me by the rock stars in my life, the first time, the second time, even the third time they said no, I would have been like, you know what? that maybe this avenue is not, it's not for me and I, I need to do something else, you know, but because I had resilience, because I knew from an early age not to let no discourage me and that no only meant that they didn't understand what it was that I was offering them. So let me reframe my offer for you. Let me tell you exactly what it is that I'm offering you because honestly, I, obviously you don't understand what it is, right? So it really helped me, you know, in, in the nest in the next aspects of my life to get to my divine purpose a little bit later on. I told you guys earlier, I was telling you that, you know, we were always able to get Christmas presents, right? Every year, right? And that came also from the rock stars of my community because my uncle, my uncle was what we called the meat man, right? And the meat man would go around from house to house to house. He would be the guy, he would come in. We have all these different meats in his car that he would give you for like 25 cents on the dollar from whatever it was in the grocery store. So we knew when he was coming that we was eating good. This was going to be good eating when he was coming because he would have steaks, chicken, fish, sausage, 
for everything you want, right? But in addition, like my, my uncle in particular, he had like this big coat when he came on his coat. So he was a skinny man, right? But he looked like he was about 250 pounds when he came because he had all this stuff in his coat <laughs> that he was you know, bring into your house. So when he would come, you know, he would, you know, he's like, hey, you know, I got the meats, what you want to get? We would get the meats that he wanted to buy. But anytime, you know, somebody needed something, you know, he was the person that would go get it. So you could be like, hey, you know, my kids want a bike for Christmas. He'd be like, you know, let me get a couple of days. I'm gonna bring you a bike, you know? Or he'd be like, yeah, my kid's trying to get the PS5. What you got? You know, he would have been like, look, I got you. I'm gonna go get your PS5, right? He would make sure he got it when all the stores were sold out. We didn't know how he would get it, but he would have made sure he got got that PS5 that everybody trying to get right now. So he was the person that was always willing to say yes, even if he didn't know how it was going to make it happen, you know, and and what that helped me to do, not just to be able to enjoy the Christmas presents that we got every year, but it, it taught me to always be willing to say yes to an opportunity, you know, even if you don't know how you're going to make it happen, even if you're like, man, where the hell am I going to get you know, a PS5 for me, or is it, I think that's the PS, that's just what everybody wants right now. Like, where am I going to get this PS5 from? Like, ain't no stores selling them right now, right? He taught me not to be afraid to say yes to this opportunity, even if you don't know how it's going to make it happen. And I had to use that in several opportunities that I was confronted with later on in my life, you know, like being able to keep that vision helped me to be able to embrace the yes and not to be afraid of the no. So definitely, definitely. Can I use this as a moment to pour it out? Like, uh, cause I had a flash too of just understanding privilege here in this as well and whiteness as well. Can I use this as an opportunity to point something out to the listeners? Absolutely. You- if we if we thought about that uncle, you know, and you know, you have this flash within your subconscious mind where you think, oh, well, you don't know where he got it. And you you kind of go into this negative Nancy within your mind, right? You kind of label him in a way. I was seeing my own whiteness in this because we don't do that. Like I come from an Italian background, even though my hair is so light and my skin is in all, all of like theirs, like my family's. But we grew up watching the Godfather movies, the Sopranos, and you had the same thing. You knew people. Well, we, our family didn't, but you always like knew that within the Italian communities, you knew somebody who was going to have something fall off a truck, right? <laughs> and You didn't think twice about that. And so I think that there's a good teaching moment, you know, just for everybody right here to say the way that society and particularly the media, how the media portrays people here, you have the movie, The Sopranos, not movie. Uh, TV show that everybody watched and was like, hey, it fell off a truck. Um, And, and, you know, like we, we have to watch the way that we label within our own minds based off of what we're seeing within the media, TV shows, movies, and all of that. I absolutely agree with that. And I, I think we saw the same situation with the crack cocaine community and their addiction versus cocaine and its addiction and the communities that that was in or crack cocaine and heroin. We would label people that were addicted to crack cocaine as the 
degenerates. You know, like we, they were lesser than, than the less, you know, in the community. And they were people that we needed to put away, put into jail, to get away from our families. You know, people that we, you know, felt like were criminals and that could only bring negativity to in our environment. But when it came to communities that were not Black, you know, where they had heroin addictions and they had cocaine addictions, we were more focused on rehabbing them and helping them and getting them back to that better place, primarily because they looked differently than that that community that was addicted to crack cocaine. So definitely, you know, there, there's been different stigmas and connotations that we put on certain communities simply because of what they look like or where they came from. And we say it's because what they're doing, but when you compare the communities that have similar behaviors, we don't treat them the same. So I, I definitely agree with that. Yeah. Would you say like, I think I'm assuming, but I just want to ask, it's the same with the opioid addiction right now too, right? We're kind of like, oh, you know, poor white people, you know, you, you cause it's a primarily more mm-hmm. white drug, right? Mm-hmm. They've gotten it from yeah. the doctors, now they're addicted. And same thing, we're trying to get them help, but there is a privilege there. Mm-hmm. Yep, we, we definitely, we have more patience and understanding with privilege than with disenfranchised communities. And, you know, that was one of the things that really drove me to want to become an attorney. Like, you know, I, and initially a lot of people say, you know, well, did you, why'd you become an attorney? You know, did you always want to be a part of the Black Lives Matter movement? Did you always, you know, want to, you know, be, you know, the super attorney X, Y, and Z, but it wasn't that like initially I really just wanted to help my family and my community because I saw that they were disenfranchised. I saw that they were treated differently. I saw that the world, you know, wasn't willing to help them like they did some of the other communities and that included the legal system. It was always stressful and hard for them to just get the legal team or the legal care that they needed. You know, even if even if they were guilty, let's assume like assume. And I'm not going to say they was always guilty. I'm not going to say they was always innocent. But there is still so important to be able to have somebody that can support you and that has your back while you're going through the system. They didn't even have the basics. They didn't have the basics. So initially. When I became an attorney, it was really just because I wanted to provide some support for my mom and my dad who went to prison for selling drugs and I didn't get to see when I was younger. And my uncles who were dragged, you know, out of the grocery stores and beaten up for, you know, a a five dollar steak, (laughs) you know, you know, that they may have had. You know, that's one of the main reasons, because I, I felt like, you know, there was a difference in the way that they were treated, regardless of whether they participated in the act or not. They still deserved justice. Everybody deserves justice. Yeah, 100%. Friends, one of the questions that I get most from you is, Julie, how do I know that this is my intuition? Julie, how do I know that this is really my angels communicating with me? Julie, how do I know if this is really a sign? Friends, the entire month of April, we are diving into a lesson within the Angel Membership. It's an entire course on trusting your intuition. Now, friends, if you're like, but Julie, this feels frustrating to me. I should just be able to trust more, right? Wrong. Friends, you have been taught since you were a very small person not to trust your intuition. We have been socialized to think that one brain type is better than the other. And for those of us who are deeply empathic, and if you're listening to this podcast, you most likely are. 
we were taught otherwise. We were taught to eat everything on our plate or else we weren't going to get dessert. We were told not to cry. You know, we were told all of these things as children. And what it actually did was wire us in a way where we weren't trusting of ourselves. We weren't trusting our intuition. And that has carried over from childhood into adulthood for most people. So going through this course is undoing the programming within your mind, undoing these past notions of, you know, just tough it out. You have to learn how to trust yourself. And there is an entire course for you on this that I have channeled from Spirit. So if you'd like to be a part of this, look in the show notes below. All April, we are diving into trusting your intuition. And I'm so, so excited for you to really grasp onto this yummy material because once you have this, it really solidifies that foundation within you. And you know, like you know, like you know, when spirit's working with you, how they're working with you, you trust it, you believe in it. And friends, that's the energy that you have to have because it keeps your energetic auric field open. And all of the new yummy experiences that spirit is trying to bring your way coming through, right? Because the opposite of trusting your intuition is not trusting it. And that's where you block yourself. So come on over to the angel membership. We will help you to trust yourself, to trust your intuition. So how did you become a lawyer? You said that you were turned down, you know, a lot. What mm -hmm. what was the in? How did you get in? You know, I don't know if there was any in. You know, I wanted to become a lawyer ever since I was eight years old. Like I, I knew that I wanted to become an, uh, an attorney. I had the vision even when I was a sex worker. You know, that this point in my life wasn't the end of my story. You know, that this was just the comma in my life. It wasn't the period. Like that always stayed in my head. Now, there were some points that I didn't think it was possible anymore. There were several points where I didn't think it was possible anymore because I had a criminal history and people knew what I did. And I had an attorney at the time that was taking me through a case that I was I was handling. And he was like, you know, he says, Alon, you're really too smart to be, you know, in this community. Like, why are you doing this? Like, what's happening? And I told him, I said, you know, I always wanted to be an attorney, but I can't do that anymore because... You know, because of my history and because of my background, and he was like, Salah, he said, I know people, attorneys that have gotten away with murder and are still attorneys. He was like, don't let anybody else's label on you determine what you can and cannot do. And that was kind of the click moment in me. Like, really? People committed murder? Like, I just was having sex for money. <laughs> you know, and they committed murder, <laughs> you know? Okay, you know, maybe this is possible. Let, let, let me reframe what's going on in my life. That was the moment that opened up my mind and clicked that I had to start reframing things, right? Reframing what my experiences were. Sometimes now, like I say that, you know, my superpower is the, is the ability to reframe because that's what really changed my perspective on everything in the world, right? Instead of letting things happen to me, I started to have everything happen for me and reframe the experiences that I was going through. 
that was the click moment that told me that it was possible. Even after that, I still, you know, worked in the industry to some degree. You know, there was a moment where I do remember being with a client and I was so, I was so disgusted and grossed out at that particular moment that I was like, I'm either going to kill myself or I'm going to become an attorney. Like I cannot do this anymore. I think that talking to my attorney was the moment that told me that it was possible. And then having that particular last experience with that client where, you know, it was just, I was grossed out by some of the stuff that was happening that gave me the push. Like, okay, now I got to do it now. All right. This is when it has to happen now. So there was no like in that I got where they was like, okay, I'm going to teach you this and I'm going to hook you up and this is how you're going to become an attorney. It was literally not letting it get to me when they kept telling the world how bad of a person I was. You know, oh, this person shouldn't be an attorney because she got this history. She got that history. She did this. She did that. And did not, I mean, I had already heard it before. I was used to it. I heard it ever since I was 12 years old. So it was nothing that this attorney that was sitting in his high rise was going to be able to tell me that I hadn't heard from a hundred people already. Right. So it didn't affect me as much as it would have affected somebody else. So it was really just being able to keep pushing forward, like keep like every time they said something negative about me, okay, yeah, that's true, but I still can help people in law, you know? Well, but you did this. Yes, that's true. I did that, but I still can help people in law and that's what I want to do. Yeah, but you did this. I know, I know. Yep, I did. I did. That's what I did, right? That's me, Caramel. Hey, I did it, but I still can help people in law, you know? So just, you know, just coming back regularly, you know, and not giving up and saying, hey, this is what I have to offer to the world. This is why the world needs it. And this is why nobody can do this the way that I can. Oh, I love that. And the way that you describe it too is exactly the way that spirit talks about the egoic mind. And I don't know if you got to see this movie. It just came out. I think like a day or two ago, the movie Soul, the new Disney movie. I've not seen it yet. I kept, so I was like, there's a movie called Soul. What's going on? Haven't seen it. I'm going to have to check it out today. I know, because as we're recording this, it is December 28th, 2020. It's so wild, okay? Because there's this one scene where this guy's soul is trying to work with this baby soul that has not incarnated into a body yet. And what happens is they call them lost souls. If they're not following their path, if they're not living, right? And so he goes into kind of, they become like these, I don't like the color aspect. I will say that of soul Mm -hmm. because they do. And we're trying to correct that on this podcast of saying like light versus dark, good versus evil type of thing. But he goes in and you really see this really great example of the egoic mind and just how much it can try and batter you down because those voices that other people tell you become part of your repetitive subconscious thoughts. Mm -hmm. So if you were to have attached to what those people were saying and allowed it to stop you, It's almost like a record player that track of them talking would play over and over again within your mind. And you did like, just, I love the way that you were talking about. No, 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 no. Like that's what you have to keep saying to yourself within yourself over and over again to stop that record player from Mm -hmm. continuing to spin within you. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I had to develop tools over time and I'm still developing a tools. Like I said, it's, it's a lifetime process, but even that, like I have a sticky note right here, like that I keep up here, you know, to remind me, you know, not to listen to these voices. Like then when I say voices, y'all don't think I'm schizophrenic or anything like that, but everybody, <laughs> everybody has that little voice that's talking over here saying, they're not going to laugh at you, that type of thing. Or you're fat, but she's not going to love you. He's not going to like you. You know, they're not going to respect you. They're going to think you a hoe. They're going to call you a hooker. They're going to call you a criminal. You got that stuff that's going on in your head, you know, yeah. that I- I have to constantly remind remind myself. Like one of the things I had, like even with this office, you know, I had to when when I designed my office initially, like because I was in lawyer mode, you know, I was like, no, I want all the wood frame and I want to do this too. You know, I want to have bookshelves over here and I want to have a big wood office, you know, to remind myself of my accomplishment. And I'm gonna put my degree in the background, you know. So everybody has to call me Jewish doctor. You know, I was like initially I was gonna do all that. I was like, wait a minute, no, I need to be motivated to get to where I need to get. So I'm going to put affirmations around everywhere. So everywhere I have like different affirmations all around the room, you can't see here. So I have, you know, she believed she could. So she did. I believed I could, you know, even when they told me I could. So I did, you know, I have dreams don't work as you, until you do. Every mistake you make is progress. Follow one course into successful. That one I have to, I have to follow that one all the time because it's entrepreneurs and, and business owners. Right here, follow one course into successful. You see it? Like as, as entrepreneurs, we have a thousand different ideas, you know, that goes on in our head, you know, at any given time. Like, okay, then I'm going to open this, but then I'm going to start this, but then I'm going to work in this. You know, we have this. I have to remind myself, follow one course into successful. It keeps me on track. I keep my reaffirmations around me regularly so that I can, I wake up, you know, in the morning and listen to my reaffirmations, pray, you know, open a book, read sometimes. Like I have these different tools that I just have to work with. Like, and everybody needs to have, you need to have your tools as a part of your regular routine because there's always going to be those voices that's going to tell you something different than your divine purpose, right? Mm-hmm. So make keep that divine purpose around you and in practice. Yes, 100%. And actually, we're working on talking about an entrepreneur that has a thousand ideas in every direction. We're working (laughs) on like pulling something together for hopefully 2021, where somebody can listen to something and there'll be something new for every day that they can listen to, to really help pull them out of that egoic mind space. I love that you surround yourself with that. I want to dive deeper into you help organize and you spoke on the stage at the women's tell me what the exact title of it is the march, the march for women's lives march for women's lives amazing i had wanted to go with my daughter i forget what happened i think she was sick at the time or something was going on but i want to go to the next one tell us how that came about for you how you organized that like what was it like to get on stage and speak tell us all the good stuff Oh man, that was a journey right there because I was so tired. Literally, there was two years. I mean, it didn't happen overnight. It definitely, it definitely didn't happen overnight. And it started really before two years. The hardcore organizing that we had started about two years before. And we literally, I mean, we it started with us just having to go like travel from city to city to city for two years, talking to small groups of people and letting them know why women's rights was important to them and would affect them and why they needed to stand up for it. One of the biggest issues that we had was working with different demographics because it was like my demographic, you know, when you look at me at that point, you know, I was younger, but, you know, was, you know, young 
African-American females, average age of my target demographic was probably 25 years old, you know, but the, the average demographic of the National Organization for Women was 55 year old white women, you know, so we had to go and talk to each other and encourage them to have conversations together about why our movements connected, why it was important for us to work together and why if we didn't work together, that it wasn't going to work out in our best interest, right? So we had to have those hard conversations and we had to have everybody sit in front of, in front of each other and to get out their grievances and combining the feminist movement versus the womanist movement and understanding why Black women feel the way they do about joining white female movements and understanding how to be an ally, what that really means, you know, and how that plays in with your ego. But understanding like a lot of times when we're working in the movement and we're trying to build allyship around how our ego plays, you know, into that. Right. Because, you know, of course, when we're organizing, when we're sacrificing a lot. We, you know, we want to say, well, what about me? What about my rights? What about this? You know, and sometimes when we're working as allies, because sometimes I have to work, you know, as an ally for different demographics that I might not be a part of. For example, the trans community is very important to me. Right. But I'm not trans. So I'm an ally to that. Right. And but when you're going into the movement, a lot of times, you know, when it's all about one demographic at that particular time, you're like, well, what about me? I'm, I'm a black female, you know, I'm oppressed too, <laughs> you know, like how the ego can play into part and how you can manage that ego when working as an ally. Also talking about like, how do we handle fear? Because one of the biggest things that we have to confront, what we've seen like happen all of this year and the year previously, everybody is talking about all the Karens that's running around, right? And a lot of times people don't understand that word Karen. They're saying, you know, what do you mean by Karen? Some people get offended. I've had a lot of white women come to me and say, you know what? I do not like the fact that you use the word Karen. I feel like Karen is a derogatory term, like the N word to oppress white women when they want to speak out, right? So try to educate them, no, that's that's not what a Karen is. You know, you, some people may have told you that that was what a Karen is, but that's not what a Karen is. A Karen is an individual who uses their privilege to oppress disenfranchised communities. That's what a Karen is particularly. So it's not an insult. It's, it's a particular group of people that are oppressing other people. So getting them to understand that, you know, and to understand like, and, and what that comes from a lot of times is to two places. The first, it comes from fear. There's legitimate times where we're in the world and we are afraid and we're like, you know, I don't know what to do, you know? So all I know what to do is to call the police. I'd rather just call the police, you know, and get them involved so that I don't have to put myself in danger. So how do we confront this very real fear that a lot of communities have, right? That can turn into oppression. Being able to address it up front. So we had to have these hard conversations. We went around the world organizing small communities initially. Like it started out where, you know, we would go to communities where only five people would show up, you know? And we had to talk to them like we were talking to 5,000 people, you know, and discussing the fear and discussing how they can be allies and discussing why it was important to go to Washington so that we can stand up and be heard. Right. And then eventually the groups got bigger as we kept coming back, not being afraid of that. No, because a lot of times people told us no, even there. Right. There was a lot of people like, I am not going to Washington, D.C. on my dime. You want me to spend money like I got to work. I can't take off from work. How am I going to get there? I got to get a plane. I got to get on a bus. You want me to march? How far? We, we got a lot of no's there, too. But we kept coming back. We wasn't afraid of that no, 
at the time. Just keep coming, keep talking and addressing the issues, having conversations with each other. By the time, though, I got to stage because, you know, we did a lot of organizing for the march as well. Not even just getting the people there and organizing them around women's issues, but also, you know, getting, you know, all of the speakers and celebrities. I mean, we had Hillary Clinton, Whoopi Goldberg, Peter, Paul and Mary, you know, Gloria, like we had so many like people that was like, that we were organizing, you know, on the stage. Right. So literally by the time I got to stage, I had not gone to sleep in about 48 hours. (laughs) So like I've been, like there's a lot I don't remember from the state because I was sleepwalking. Like by the time, like by the time I got there, I was sleepwalking on the day of the march. It was amazing. The thing that I do remember is looking out into this sea of people, you know, in Washington D.C. that we had all united together that said, "I care about women and women's rights, and I'm not going to stand here and let them be oppressed in any way." Any woman, no matter what she looked like or how she was born, we're not going to let any of them be oppressed. And I stood on that stage and there were like, a, like you couldn't even see the end of people. You couldn't even see. And that made me feel like, you know what, I'm about to pass out on the stage, but it's okay. Because somebody's going to catch me. They're going to catch me. So it was okay. Oh, wow. That is incredible. So How did you, when you were working with people and bringing them together, right? That is 2021. Mm -hmm. How do people release the pain, the fear that they have within them? How do you push that aside to really make that connection for them to see the bigger picture? You know, one thing I think that is important is that we we can't release the pain or we can't really push the pain aside. We have to address it. We have to heal it and we have to work through it. Right. So that the, the scar can heal. Like if we try to push it aside, you know, it's going to come back. It might even get bigger. Try to put a Band-Aid over it. You know, it may still hurt. You'd be like, oh, my God, it's getting worse. Like right now I got a leg problem. I don't know what is going on, but I can't walk on it real well. I'd be trying to push it to a side. I'm like, it's going to get better. I ain't been to the doctor for it yet. I need to go ahead and go to the doctor. But I need to address it so that it can heal because it ain't getting better yet, right? Um, and I think we do that a lot of times um, in, in life as well. When we go through painful experiences, when we're hurt, when we're injured, we try to push the pain aside. And really, we have to confront it. We just have to get together and have these hard conversations and work towards a solution, right? And it can't just be coming in and 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 talking about how everything is wrong. We have to come to the table with solutions, knowing that maybe those solutions might not work. People might not be happy with our solutions. People may be like, that's not going to work for this reason, but we came with some type of offer. This is how we can start, right? I think that it's very important to remember that concerns that don't come with solutions are just complaints. And complaints will never solve the problem. They will never solve the problem. So we can't just come to the table with complaints. We have to come with solutions. But I think the initial thing that we have to do is we really just have to work on healing, that, addressing it and healing those injuries, right? Healing those hard conversations, healing the distrust that we've lost, you know, the problems that we've had with each other. Like, for example, one of the things that I do is we have this international conversation called White Women Can We Talk, right? And it's where white women and black women, we come together to unite. We've had it. Like we've had thousands of people actually participate in this conversation. I think the first 
conversation that we had, we had over 5,000 people attend at the first conversation. And I think the second one, we had over 10,000 people attend. And we do it in different cities around the state. The initial one is the live version, and then we actually come in person. We were recently invited to Nigeria um, and London and well, which is going to take it internationally. So I'm really excited about that. But that's a, a space where we just come and we have these hard conversations and we ask the hard questions so that we can get to the healing so that after we get to the healing, we can get to making a better place, right? We can get to working together. Okay. We, we addressed it. We healed. Now we can work on the solution, right? That's the amazing thing about it. That's what I'm really excited about. And I think that's the first step is to get to the healing, not necessarily to push the did the wounds aside or get past them, but to heal from them, address them and heal. And then we can work through them. Yes, 100%. And I took a, a course, a 16 week course earlier in 2020, and they really talked about uh, Louisa Duran is the one that ran the course. And she would talk all the time about how it's vibrational, like within your body, that pain is vibrational and trauma is vibrational. And what you said is so, so spot on. I'm so sorry, I didn't say it the right way. But you have to be able to work through that vibration that you're holding within you to get to that space of healing so that you can show up for others. I just want to take this time and and thank you so much, Sela, for being here. I am just honored that you gave us your time to be here. Amazing, amazing story. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And I apologize for turning the video for a second. My kids, they were trying to come in downstairs and I had to say, can you go get these? Can you go get the kids? And <laughs> Stop trying it because my kids, I don't know if my kids broke in the door when I was on this phone call. My kids, they will break in the door. They and I, I normally, you know, when I'm in my office, I have a sign up and I'm like, look, you know, don't disturb me, but they will come in. So that's just part of being a mommy. Like for everybody out there, you know, it's yeah. part of being, especially during quarantine. Oh, 100%. 100%. Hey, I do have one last question for you. When it comes to the March for Women's Lives, will there be another one? There's always going to be another March. Absolutely. Yeah, there's always going to be another March. I can't give you details about when. I do know that there's going to be a Protect Black Women March that we're doing in Atlanta, Georgia in the spring sometime, but we don't have an exact date for it, but look out for it. Several different platforms. They can check me out on my personal website, which is Salah Ward. My name is spelled a little differently. It's N-S-E-L-A-A. It's Salah. Um, it's the N is silent. So N-S-E-L-A-A-W-A-R-D. So SalahWard.com. We'll have the dates up there. You can also go Go to the business website, um, ninavafirm.com, which is N-I-N-A-V-A-F-I-R-M.com, and we'll have updates posted there. Of course, on social media, all my social media is Salah Ward, so you can reach me on Instagram, Salah Ward, uh, Snapchat, even though I don't participate on Snapchat that much, Salah Ward, Twitter, Salah Ward, Facebook is Salah Ward fan page. So yes, definitely keep posted. And there's going to be some more activism and movement coming in 2021. That's amazing. Well, if you keep us updated, we'll keep sharing it with the podcast so that they know um, when that is and where to go. And we'll put all of those details that you just gave us for your social media and website and everything right in the show notes so that people can find you really easy. Thank you again for sharing your time with us today. That sounds good. Thank you so much for having me. This was a really, really exciting conversation. And I hope that we can do some more in 2021. Oh, absolutely. Anytime. Open invitation. All right. Thank you so much, sis. You too. Bye. Bye-bye.
Beautiful souls, I'm so excited to announce that my book on angels and how they're working miracles in your life will be available on Amazon fall of 2021. If you're listening on or after fall of 2021, check it out. Friends, if you'd like to work with me each week, my angel membership program is perfect for you. You can join at any time and you get access to past courses. In 2021, I'll be teaching you about a new topic each month. We started the year in February with a course on oneness and raising your vibration. March is angel communication, how to hear your angels. April is trusting your intuition. May is knowing your soul's purpose. June is working with Archangel Raphael to learn self-energy healing techniques and Chakras 101. July is rewriting the stories you've been holding on to. August is all about rewiring your mind to move past blocks. September is energetically working through ancestral trauma. October is working with your inner child and Archangel Michael. November is a guide to being an empath. Then we're rounding out the year with a course in December that helps you connect with your loved ones on the other side to help you deepen your personal connection with them. And in January 2022, we'll be back with a whole new course on manifestation and co-creation. You get all of this live group access to me, two new pre-recorded Reiki healings, and advance notice to book a session with me when you're an angel member. Sign up for the angel membership anytime. If you're listening in 2022, please know that we're planning to add new content each month. For details and to sign up, view the show notes below. Friends, the only thing that's not included in the Angel Membership right now is the Angel Reiki School, where you learn to develop your unique spiritual gifts. Whereas the Angel Membership is about your awakening journey and your personal spiritual growth, the Angel Reiki School, on the other hand, certifies you as an Angel Reiki Master Teacher and teaches you the art of energy healing and bringing through messages for your clients. Friends, if you're feeling called to the Angel Reiki School, it's because the souls you're here to help on earth, well, they're omnipresent piece of them. You know, they're higher selves on the other side. That's what's behind you, pushing you, fueling you to become who you're meant to be. Because when you do, they know your work will shift the trajectory of their life here. That's what I mean when I say you have big, big purpose in this lifetime. A new class of the Angel Reiki School starts on the first of each month. Speaking of the Angel Reiki School, we're going to need about 800 volunteers this year. We select volunteers from people who've written a five-star positive review and emailed us a copy. That way, we have a way of contacting you for your free volunteer session. 
Many of you have asked if I'm still booking sessions, and the answer to that is yes. I love, love, love my sessions with you. We have a new system where we send out an email once a month with a link to my calendar for you to book online. It's really easy. All you have to do is sign up to be on my email list on my website, theangelmedium.com. I've been spending a ton of time going live with you on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook, and I'm having a blast with it. Join me over on social and our newly launched YouTube channel for tons of new content, teaching videos, and actual video footage of these podcast episodes. Friends, from the bottom of my heart, thank you so, so much for being part of this community and listening to this show. I truly feel that this is your show and the angel's show, and I just feel so blessed to be a part of it. You're the most supportive community a podcaster could have. I pray for you every day. If you have a special prayer request, you can submit it through my website homepage and I'll be praying for you personally. Now for the oneness meditation, which is the last five minutes of every episode. And as you do this meditation, you'll raise your vibration and the vibration of the planet. Friends, what I want you to do is to just get into a relaxed position. Uh, if you are driving, operating machinery, need to concentrate, then this meditation is not for you. But anyone who is able to focus their attention on it, please join me. Friends, I want you to start by taking a deep breath in and a deep breath out. And I want you to imagine that your socks, your shoes are off and that your bare feet are able to connect with the soil of the earth. And down through the bottom, the soles of your feet are these large roots that go down far and wide into the earth. Those roots go down far and wide, anchoring you into the earth as if you were a tree yourself. And up through those roots comes this beautiful, yummy, tingly energy. It begins to tingle at the tip of your toes. I want you to allow this yummy, tingly energy to just dance up over your feet, around your ankles. Feel this yummy, tingly energy as it moves up over your calves, your shins, all the way up to your knees. Feel this energy at your knees and allow it to move up the thighs, the hamstrings all the way up to the sides of the hips. I want you to allow this energy to move from the hips up to the base of your spine, the base of your stomach. And I want you to feel this energy as it climbs up the spine and the stomach all the way up 
until it reaches your heart. As you feel this yummy, tingly, sparkly energy surrounding the outside of your heart, filling the inside of your heart, notice how your entire body comes into a gentle state of ease. Allow this energy to move up into the shoulders, into the neck. Feel it as it fills your entire head front to back, side to side, top to bottom. And then feel this energy as it moves through the hair follicles on the top of your head so that you feel this yummy tingliness two inches to ten feet or higher above the top of your head. Friends, you might feel like there's a string above your head lifting you up towards the sky. You might feel an airy floatiness. You might feel an expansive spaciousness. What I want you to do from here is imagine that there is this large opening at the crown of your head. It's the size of a cereal bowl, right? And I want you to imagine that it extends upwards towards heaven and that God sends this loving, peace-filled oneness energy. It's love, it's joy, it's peace, it's bliss, it's ease, it's grace. And God just sends this energy through the crown of your head. It moves through your head, down through your neck, down through your shoulders, and it starts to pull, this God energy starts to pull around your heart, within your heart. And I just want you to feel that for a moment. And I want you to just tap in and notice. I want you to notice that your heart, your physical heart, is one with your body. And I want you to notice that your heart and your body are one with the air surrounding you. surrounding you are one with all life here on earth, all plants, all people, all animals, all life on earth. And now notice how your heart, body, air surrounding you, all life here on earth are connected to everything everywhere. Friends, did you notice how your body got more expansive, your energy got more expansive, and you could feel out into your auric field, you could feel out into the energy of the world, into the energy of everything everywhere. Friends, that is oneness, and you can carry oneness with you stop here. I don't want you to open up your eyes. I want you to continue this meditation and to see 
that surrounding you are angels. You have guardian angels around you. You have cherub angels holding the space open for you to get into oneness at any time. You have archangels working with you in every area of your life. You have loved ones on the other side. See them. See them in detail, friends, because you seeing them in detail is the exact same thing as you going to them on the other side, knocking on their door, asking them to spend time with you. They love you so incredibly much. They want to spend time with you. They want to develop that relationship with you. When they're there, you're here. I know it's different, but you can still have that beautiful, incredible relationship. All of these beings, your angels, your guides, your loved ones on the other side, they form your spirit team who's always working to guide you, direct you, protect you. Friends, what I want you to do is just take some time with them right here, right now. What they want you to know is that they are working with you all the time. What they want you to know is that they are sending you signs and symbols to show you that they're next to you. Friends, they ask you to see that they are bringing in gift after gift after gift through your heart chakra to bless your life with miracles. Friends, it's your job to remain open, to believe, and to trust that they are working miracles in your life. Friends, I love you. They love you so incredibly much. Stay open and know, believe, trust, have faith, know like you know like you know that they are working with you always. See you here next time. Have a blessed day.